the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Tim DeMoss Show podcast. You can hear the program each weekday afternoon from 4 till 5 on AM 560 WFIL and WFIL.com. AM 560 WFIL.com and on the app, you're listening to the Tim DeMoss Show. Thank you for tuning in. Hope you had a fine weekend. Good deal of clouds today. Some sun here and there. Might get a shower before the day's through. 87 the high. Clear skies tonight, low 65. Tomorrow's sunny and a high of 91. Phil's lost 7-3 to Miami yesterday. Edmundo Sosa, home run number six. One of the few bright spots. Aaron Nola, an okay outing. Six innings pitched. Eight hits, four earned runs. Didn't walk anybody. Struck out six, but did give up three home runs. Phillies in all of Major League Baseball now. On the All-Star break, the game is tomorrow. National and American League's going at it at 8 o'clock. Nick Castellanos of the Phils on the team, and Craig Kimbrell, a relief pitcher, added as a replacement as well. Uh, then the Phillies are back home next up, regular season, resuming Friday night. They'll be home against San Diego at 6.05. In tennis, the U.S. men's national team, a 3-2 win over Canada in overtime, penalty kicks, advancing in the Gold Cup. And in Wimbledon, if you're a tennis fan, I am. Uh, it's, it's fun to watch some of these players. And it's one of those sports you can play most of your life. just need you know, one other person to play. And uh, Christopher Eubanks, a 27-year-old American, making his Wimbledon debut as having a dream ride. He upset fifth-ranked and fellow Greek, I'm Greek, and St- uh, Stephanos Tsitsipas uh, in five sets. And so he advances to the quarterfinals, take on Daniil Medvedev. I like Daniel Medvedev. I've seen him being interviewed. He seems like a very classy player. Uh, Second-ranked Novak Djokovic advancing to the quarterfinals as well. He's a 23-time Grand Slam champion. And uh, so we'll see. And Carlos Alcaraz is ranked number one in the world, is uh, playing as we speak. So that all continues on with Wimbledon. Um, Our program today has a couple of special guests who I will share about in a moment, but just last week, we had a very special guest join us, Dr. Michael Youssef from Leading the Way, which is WFIL's Ministry of the Month for July. Every day this month, we're giving away Leading the Way's, uh, Dr. Youssef's book, Hope for This Present Crisis. And in that book, Dr. Youssef provides a concise seven-step plan to help you be a godly influence in the world today, in your home, your community, campus, workplace, wherever you go. Uh, we had Dr. Youssef again on the program last week, and one of the things that you know is in the title is the word hope, and that despite the discouragement you may see about some of the things going on in the world, it doesn't mean that you know we're doomed. And in fact, you know, good things can still yet happen. Oh, and when you think about times in the past, and it happened twice in America, where morality has gone down into the gutter. And things really got so bad. The first one, of course, when God raised Jonathan Edwards and and it became uh, the first great awakening. 
And then in 1857, it was a time. It was so. It was so bad. The depression was worse than the 1920s, and there was run on the banks, and things were really bad. And then Jeremiah Lamphy, a businessman, a, a layman, and he wasn't a preacher. He just started a prayer meeting, and soon swept across the nation and brought us a second great awakening. And so there is hope, unless the Lord returns, which we all, of course, would love to see. But if he is not, this is not his time yet, then we need to be praying for an awakening, that God will give us a third great awakening, and that he would transform all this craziness and madness that has really taken place to repentance tears of repentance, which often happens with a great awakening, and people will repent of their sins and come to God. That's what we want to see. We don't want to destroy our enemies. We want them to repent and come to the Lord and believe in Him and share with us in the eternal joy of knowing the Savior and be with Him for all of eternity. So that's really the longing of my heart at 75, and I am, as, as a friend of mine says, Piddle to the metal, he said, because I said, look, I said, let me tell you why. I am now able to see the finishing line. So I'm sprinting. I'm not, this is a marathon, but I've been, I've been taking time. Now it's a sprinting time hmm. because whatever years he's got for me, left for me, I want to be absolutely making everything possible, doing everything possible to see that men and women come to Christ and believe in him so that I can take a million souls with me when I go to heaven. That's Dr. Michael Youssef from Leading the Way, which you can catch certainly uh, weeknights at 530, a little bit after This program concludes also 3 a.m. and several times over the weekend. Weekly winners uh, not only get the daily prize of that book, Hope for This Present Crisis, but also pick up a devotional three-pack. Features I praise you, O God, heal me, O God, and I long for you, O God. You can enter to win right on our homepage at WFIL.com. Now, we do have uh, also on the homepage a podcast of our conversation with Dr. Youssef. You are welcome to scoop that up. At WFIL.com, you can listen right on our homepage or simply subscribe to the Tim DeMoss Show podcast wherever you get your podcasts and have it delivered right to you. So as far as our special guests go today, uh, coming up, we have, uh, and they're both very adventurous. It's an adventurous kind of a program. Jane Ferguson, who is an award-winning foreign correspondent for PBS NewsHour, is going to join us. She has a brand new book out, a memoir called No Ordinary Assignment. And she describes uh, some of the places she has been, uh, primarily in the Middle East, the work she has done over the last 12 to 15 years. So it's partly a book on journalism and how it all works and some of the stories and harrowing experiences she had, and there are plenty of them. But it's also a story about herself. She, She talks about at the beginning of the book how she really had to think about her own life growing up to what would make me do crazy stuff like being a war correspondent. So we'll talk with Jane Ferguson about that book. And then as long as we're on the crazy topic, we have Dr. Greg Scomel joining us. He is author of the new book, Chasing Shadows, My Life, Tracking the Great White Shark. And he has been, this is really his life's work. He lives up in Massachusetts, in Martha's Vineyard, actually, and has uh, written this long book uh, detailing Many different scenarios, and uh, it talks about what goes into tracking sharks and shark activity, the balance between conservatory-type stuff and making sure that the great whites don't go extinct, at the same time, public safety and how that all comes together. So we'll chat with both Jane Ferguson 
and Dr. Greg Skomo on our program today. And that and uh, much more on the way. You're listening to The Tim DeMoss Show, AM 560, WFIL.com, and on the WFIL app. Have a guest you'd like to hear on The Tim DeMoss Show on AM 560, WFIL? Email D at WFIL.com. AM 560 WFIL. It's Torn Wells and Pray. That is a, uh, a almost a for sure song you're going to catch when you are at the uh, at the concert with CC Winans. You've heard us talk about that big show happening on the uh, 17th of August. You can enter to win tickets at WFIL.com right on our homepage. C.C. Winans and Friends, C.C., of course, headlining that. She's a gospel music hall of famer and has, uh, you know, won all kinds of Grammys and Dove Awards and all that. Most importantly, a, a woman of God who will appoint you to the Lord, as will Tornwells that night. Tasha Cobbs Leonard, part of that. E. Daniels, too. Details right on our homepage, WFL.com. We're giving away tickets for that. You are welcome to uh, get entered for those. While you're on our site, we encourage you to take time and uh, get yourself in the mix for a bunch of different contests that we have going. We have a lot of them, and uh, we love doing that. It's just a lot of fun to be able to present different opportunities for listeners to win things. It could be through the quizzes and surveys we do. It could be through um, you know, the, uh, the books that are given away. Sometimes it's CDs. Sometimes it's cash. Sometimes it's trips. Whatever it is, lots of fun. And, you know, if you're part of the rewards club for the radio station, which is a free thing to join, it allows you to enter those contests pretty quickly. So jump on board with that when you get a chance, among other things, at WFIL.com. You can often find those right on the homepage, but you also can go to the contest page specifically. Sometimes there's so much going on, all the contests won't fit on the homepage, if you will. So the contest page is a sure bet. But sometimes we do have the uh, real estate, if you will, to put those uh, on the homepage for you to find out and be part of. So we encourage you to do so and, uh, and have fun with that. Again, it really is a, a privilege and a blessing to be able to add that dimension to what the radio station is about. Of course, first and foremost, it's about the Lord. It's about hearing about his truth from the different pastors and speakers you hear on the radio station. Uh, also, hopefully through this program in different ways. Uh, but also we add those other uh, extras to make it a fun, interactive experience. Uh, speaking of interaction, before we get to our first guest, you are always welcome to uh, send me an email. It's simply Timmy D, T-I-M-M-Y-D, at WFIL.com. And uh, that's, you know, anytime you think you maybe just driving around, you hear something, you want to send a quick note, uh, or maybe you have a little story you'd like to share, maybe you have a guest you'd like to hear on the program, maybe you have some feedback, or whatever it is, you're welcome to do that, Timmy D, T-I-M-M-Y-D, at WFIL.com. Uh, maybe it's just a birthday, a little shout out to somebody or something. That's that's good too. Uh, also, our text line for the show is 610 500 Dove, 610 500 3683. And uh, that way you can, uh, at any point, just text in something that's on your mind and we can incorporate that into the show. Maybe you have a question about something, that's all good as well. So do be encouraged. 
to uh, utilize both of those platforms, if you will. Uh, again, t- uh, Timmy D, T-I-M-M-Y-D, at WFIL.com, or you can, uh, you can uh, text in 610-500-3683. So that's it. We want to bring on board our first guest of the hour. She is an award-winning journalist for PBS NewsHour, contributor to The New Yorker and many other places, and she's written a memoir at her young age, No Ordinary Assignment, it's called. Jane Ferguson, our guest. Hey, Jane, how's it going? Hi, Tim. It's great. How you doing? Great. Uh, great to talk with you. Author of No Ordinary Assignment. And uh, as we get into things, before my first question, kind of as a lead-in, my, my son Tim had the opportunity to go to Jordan in 2017 as part of a small team that was doing a document, uh, documentary on Syrian refugees. And certainly a big part of that is it really is storytelling. And in an article after the documentary was done, someone had interviewed him and he talked about uh, interviewing a little girl, seven-year-old girl, and seeing his sister in the little girl he was interviewing. And, the, you know, the importance of sharing stories. I, I, I want to just, yeah. first of all, because storytelling is such a big thing for you, maybe just ask you about that, the importance of that to you, how you go about that craft and it, being a reporter the way you are rather than just headlines or, or visuals necessarily. You know, I've been lucky enough to work for news organizations that, especially the news hour, where we have the airtime to do that. You know, I really want people to connect. You know, I believe in my in my work as a communicator, you know, and, you know, I want people to commune. And, you know, when we're doing like news where you've got 70 seconds and, and you know, you're in the West Bank and, and just, you know, just explain quickly what's going on. You know, you can never humanize people in that way. You know, yeah. Um, yeah. I can't help people connect unless I can actually tell a story. And very often the best way I try to tell those stories is to have as light a footprint as possible, to let people tell their own stories. I'm a conduit between the viewer and the people whose stories I'm trying to tell. The best way is to hand the mic over to people and really help them talk directly to those who are watching. I think I've found over the years, but I've been lucky enough to work for a news organization that will give me, you know, seven, eight, sometimes 10, 11 minutes of airtime uh, in one show. So so I, I'm able to do that. That's really, really important. Giving people a voice is more than just a slogan. It's, it's a literal way of telling a story. Hand the mic over. Mm. How much did you know about No Ordinary Assignment when you started to write it? Like, was it a huge hunk of marble? Like, where do I start? Or did you... And were you discovering, because it's about you as much as it's about the work you've done, and how much of it you already kind of like, well, I know who I am, I'm halfway done, and I have to, now I know, I guess, see where it goes from here. I think when I first started thinking about the book a few years ago, I was really thinking about, you know, all these stories that I had and, and the adventures and, and, you know, the funny stories and what it was like coming up in, in the industry where, you know, you weren't necessarily embraced. You know, I wanted to tell the funny freelancer side of things. But the more I really wrote and thought about the book over the years, the more I realized that I needed to answer that question, why do I do this kind of work? Um, and the more you the more you dig into answering that question, the more you're trying to understand yourself and you're connecting the dots backward in a way that's very deep and very, very raw. So that came throughout the writing process where I decided that what I really wanted to do was write a book about what makes war reporters who we are. 
You know, we are living through an era where journalists are demonised on the one side and lionised as celebrities on the other. And in the middle, we're all just human beings doing our best, you know, with we're, we're, we're fallible, we're, we've got complex personal lives, we're trying our best to do meaningful work and build careers. And we're constantly, you know, trying to walk the line between, you know, uh, our, our personal lives and our work. And um, I think the only way I could honestly answer the question, why do I do this work, was to get really, really personal. Hmm. Yeah, because as you're talking there, I was thinking of different limitations or challenges, whatever the word is, uh, whether it's, as you say in the very beginning, as with most memories, mine's not infallible. Any errors are unintentional. I mean, as good as intentions as you have, you might have forgotten something. Uh, and in the end, you're one person. You can't be everywhere at all times. And the, even just the constant need to learn about the cultures you go to and how things work, limitations, things you wanted to get to tell, but you never even got to tell because you, for one reason or another, couldn't be where you wanted to be at a certain time. All of those things, I think, you know, but at the, at the end of that day, it sounds like you, you know, you understand all all of that and let's do our best with what we have. And it's important to share that with your readers, right? That like, okay, I'm learning as I go. Uh, you know, there are stories I would tell differently. You know, there's techniques I would I would use. I wish, oh, I wish I'd written that differently or I wish I'd done that differently. But also, and I get into this quite in depth in the book, there's a lot of moral and ethical uh, conundrums that we're learning from and trying to figure out and really trying to do the right thing in our in our work and I and I I emphasize this a lot in my writing that I'm I'm questioning myself like why am I doing that is that the right decision am I helping these people should I have been a doctor you know you know there's <laughs> there's a lot of of that and I know that the best foreign correspondents and the best war reporters do think about those those ethical big 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 picture questions quietly you know in the back of our minds we're wondering about about those and I wanted to I wanted readers to understand that I was curious uh, about the idea of prep for you and when I think about this conversation is a small example of like helping tell your story like just like you have 10 minutes to tell someone else's story and the parallels there and I want to prep I want to read your book I want to think through questions and at the same time, you have get the time you have. And so I'm curious, as you're prepping for your work and you're traveling all over the world, but then there's all these curveballs that come, much more than you know, this conversation can be more you know, predictable. But what, how do you go from what's your mindset on prepping well versus <laughs> leaning on just instinct? And I'm not, I, I can't worry about asking every exact question the way I wanted to ask it and all that. <laughs> well, I... I uh, I think it's a great question, and hopefully my foreign editor isn't listening because you know there's there, there's the pitch session, which is the this is the story I will get for you, yes. <laughs> and these are the elements I will I will film and people I will interview, and then there's reality when you land into a country that is you know chaotic. There's a war going on. You know, it, culturally, it's much much less into planning. <laughs> and so, you know, you don't, there's so little that you can really plan. There are certain like exclusive access that, that you can try to set up, whether you're with an, M, and, you know, you're embedding with militaries or you're trying to interview a big, important figure, uh, you know, an official. But generally speaking, the work, the real work goes into making things happen on the ground in the moment and often having to roll with it. Things fall through all the time. And that's so much of, of the job, you know, over preparing, there's not much point because when you get on the ground, you'll realize that it is it is fly by the city or pants reporting. <laughs> right. Well, to that end, I mean, you share a lot about your story, personal story growing up uh, and, and I, which I think is a, a great it, it really leads well into the rest of everything else. And you keep drawing back on it, too. But um, to that end, do you think there's any part of your 
growing up that leads to you being able to run with things as they come? I mean, in a way, you kind of had to live that way. I know you did some uh, – you came to America to go boarding school. Even had to. I read that chapter about adjusting to all the girls around you on the field hockey team and having to just make it up as you go. So I guess you've been practicing it for a long time. Yes, I, I, I talk a lot about my childhood and about my earliest experiences because I could see them shaping me into the person that I was in the field later on. I was adaptable. You know, I was this kid who grew up in a pretty chaotic family environment in a pretty chaotic Northern Ireland, growing up in a sectarian uh, 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 society, always asking questions, always wondering why I wasn't getting the answers. And then, uh, you know, added to that, I was a kid who was a scholarship, on a scholarship to a boarding school. I was unbelievably lucky and fortunate to get that scholarship. But I was also a fish out of water. And so I had to learn to be adaptable. I spent a lot of my childhood and a lot of my early years feeling like I didn't really belong or fit in where I was. I was happy to be there, but I didn't quite fit in. So I I look back and I could see myself now. I look back at that teenage girl who was learning to adapt, you know, who was growing up on a small farm in Ireland and who's suddenly at one of the most elite boarding schools in America, you know, who's then back in Ireland working in a chicken factory to to make money to go to college, who's then who's then in Yemen studying. So, So my my whole young life, I'm learning to adapt, uh, to trust strangers, and to really trust that you know life will unfold. I don't need to be in a, a safe environment to, to trust myself to move forward and to, to 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 live a fulfilling life. Last quick question: Just any main thought or hope you have for readers of No Ordinary Assignment? I hope people read it and see journalists as human beings. And, you know, doing our best. And I hope young people read it. Anyone who's, you know, not necessarily growing up in a place where they they feel like they belong or they really feel like uh, they are, they have dreams, but they just don't know how they'll ever really make those a reality. I hope young people read it and feel inspired by, by my journey, which is unconventional, but in the end, highly rewarding. Thank you so much, Jane Ferguson. Congratulations again on No Ordinary Assignment. God bless you. Have a great rest of your day. Thank you. You too. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Jane Ferguson, award-winning foreign correspondent for PBS NewsHour, contributor to New Yorker. She went to school in Jersey as a a senior, also as recently as a couple of years ago, had done some work at Princeton in terms of being a a guest lecturer. And uh, she still travels the world and her work focusing primarily in the Middle East, her book. I think she's in her late 30s, but already has a memoir. She's packed a lot into the 35 to 40 years she's lived. Uh, No Ordinary Assignment is the name of the book. It is, it is very interesting. The first few chapters of that book talk about her growing up in a home where this is uh, related, but not the focus of the book necessarily. Uh, there was one point where she said that her mom and dad never said the words, I love you to her. Which made me sad when I read it. I mean, but I I know she's not alone in that. She said sometimes her father would speak in the third person and say, you know, your father loves you very much. But she said not once did her dad or mom ever directly say the words, I love you. And she also did not grow up in a very affectionate home. So she would say she wrote in the book even things like, you know, going to the hairdresser and having her hair worked on or even going to the optometrist and have her, you know, or the doctor touches your face a little bit when they're examining you or something like that. Even that made her remember like, man, I really wish I had that growing up. And so a little bit of the, I think the, the feistiness, if you will, um, or the, the, the drive or learning how to have to 
uh, survive, if you will, that uh, Jane Ferguson had comes from some of the difficulties she had growing up. She had some good moments, and she especially talks in the book about her sisters bonding with them. Uh, but but she also had a very difficult uh, time early on. So she weaves that together pretty well in talking about the kind of the why behind. If you ever stop to wonder, as someone who is a reporter in a war zone, what would what in the world would drive a person to do something that uh, you know dangerous in a lot of ways? And so, anyhow, uh, Jane Ferguson kind enough to spend time with us. The new book is called No Ordinary Assignment. Now, of course, we still have uh, half our show to go. And what would the rest of the program be unless we had something equally dangerous to talk about? And uh, that has to do with our next guest in a few moments. His name is Dr. Greg Skomol, and he has a book out as well. His is called Chasing Shadows, My Life Tracking the Great White Shark. He's an accomplished marine biologist. He's an underwater explorer. He's a photographer and author as well, and he has lived the last three or four decades working, uh, studying the great white shark and sharks in general and underwater life in general. He's written lots of scientific research papers, so he knows his stuff, uh, but I've also seen some interviews with him, a very personable guy, and so we're looking forward to chatting with him because the book is partly about his work, but it's also, and, and really how little is known, you know, uh, think about it. Think about the fact that you've got this massive fish, uh, you know, that's zooming underwater. How do you study something like that? It's not like, the, you know, you could just predict uh, two people going to Starbucks and they have their Monday coffee and this person always comes on Tuesday afternoons with their laptop. This is different. This is very different. Trying to track uh, a shark that can obviously move very quickly. They may only come to the area one time and they may circle around and then like what draws them in and out and how do you keep track of which one is which? And all of that. So we'll talk about some of how he does that, but uh, but also kind of the the other side of things, because, you know, for most of us, it's fairly simple. You know, if you're in the water and there's a shark, you're kind of not sure what's going to happen. And so you're, you're, you don't want to be in that situation. And it's usually very rare, but you hear about, uh, you know, shark attacks or something like that. And so you want to avoid that ever happening. But there's a, there's a lot more to it. Uh, in fact, one of the parts of the book he talks about, the, of course, the film Jaws that came out in the 70s, f- folks are aware of how when he watched that film, rather than be terrified by it, he was actually drawn to try to want to understand, well, I wonder what, that's a, that's an amazing creature, that, that, that sharks, wow, that's really fascinating. And he wasn't afraid of them. He wanted to jump in the water. The book talks about he wanted to jump in the water, not get out of the water. So we'll talk with him uh, about that. Dr. Greg Scomo coming up in just a, a few moments. Live and local, it's the Tim DeMoss Show, weekday afternoons 4 till 5 on AM 560 WFIL and at WFIL.com. Our podcast continues. It's 437 on the Tim DeMoss Show, WFIL Philadelphia. Thank you for tuning in. Our special guests joining us now author of the book Chasing Shadows My Life Tracking the Great White Shark Dr. Greg Scomel Hey sir, how's it going? Hi Tim, I'm doing great, how are you? Wonderful, thanks for taking time to chat and congratulations on Chasing Shadows Thank you, I'm really excited, thank you Yeah, Uh, before we get into the book take a minute if you would, just so folks can get to know you a bit, your background and kind of how that came into play leading up to writing Chasing Shadows Well, 
yeah, and it's it's part of my story and part of my quest. Um, you know, I started out. I grew up in in a suburb of New York City, Connecticut suburb of New York City, and um, you know, I wasn't all that close to uh, water. You know, Long Island Sound was was not that far away, but it was not the most pristine place to grow up and explore the ocean. Uh, back in the 70s. It's changed since then, thankfully. Um, so much of my inspiration to become a marine scientist, marine biologist, came from watching TV shows like The Undersea World of Jacques Cousteau. And it was really the, the movie Jaws that inspired me, and particularly the character played by Richard Dreyfus of the name uh, Matt Hooper that inspired me to be a, a shark scientist. And from that point on, you know, as I, I went to high school and then to the University of Rhode Island, my quest was to become a marine biologist and hopefully someday study sharks. And and dreams do come true, and that's really the story of Chasing Shadows. You know, it's interesting you mentioned that Chapter 2, I think, is where you talk about when people saw Jaws, they hear the scary words and all the visuals, but you saw something different, just like the Jacques Cousteau specials with the Rod Serling intros, how you actually were in- intrigued by the animal itself. And that comes all the way through Chasing Shadows as well. Yeah, yeah. Um, I kind of never lost that childhood fascination with them. And, and um, you know, watching them, it just to me, it was like, wow, that that's such a really wild animal. And then you know, Jaws obviously had such a profound impact on people, and and I said to myself, there's got to be more to this character, you know, this this shark, this species, than what I'm seeing here, you know. And I thought it was a great film. I it, I loved it in terms of entertainment, but my quest has also been to set the record straight. You know, what are the facts about? What do we really know about white sharks? And I hope the public gets that out of the book as well. It's interesting. Uh, I guess Peter Bensley's widow even commented on her appreciation for the work you did with Chasing Shadows. Yeah, Wendy Benchley was kind enough to, to read the book and, and provide commentary. You know, I had met her many years ago. I met Peter many years ago. And, I, and, and you know, what Peter did and, and what Wendy is doing now, it really is phenomenal and fantastic for sharks. You know, I think, I think Peter was a little hard on himself. You know, he, he often thought that, you know, after he wrote the book, it, and it was a wonderful movie, that he took some blame for for the demise of shark populations, and that's really not the case. You know, uh, sharks began to be exploited in the late '70s and the '80s and early '90s because markets developed for the species, and not necessarily because of the movie Jaws. Yeah, and I understand. A part of it was he was trying to be as accurate as he could be when he did when he did Jaws, and he did that research. But way back then, there was just not much to go on compared to now. Even now, you write in the book how. Uh, I think that's even why I say, I think it's page 42, the title Chasing Shadows, in a way, it's like that dark smudge on the surface of the water, a fleeting glimpse. And you talk about how hard it is and difficult to study sharks for a myriad of reasons. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And and, and that's why we named the book that, because, you know, my, my quest to become a shark scientist, I started to realize this is not easy work. You know, it's not... It's not as easy as it looked, you know, when Jacques Cousteau went diving with, with sharks, you know, back in the in the 60s. Um, to actually study them is a different story, you know, to, to learn about their basic biology, how long they live, what do they feed on, where do they go, how do they travel, you know, how do they reproduce. These are really complex questions. Actually, they're quite simple questions with really difficult approaches in order to, to answer them. And that's why for many, many, you know, for years, we just, we don't know much about these animals, and we still don't. So I'm hoping the book inspires young people to, to get into this field and, 
become, you know, the next Greg Scomo, the next Matt Hooper, whoever. Chat with Dr. Greg Scomo, author of Chasing Shadows, My Life Tracking the Great White Shark, which I think speaks to a little bit of, uh, despite the difficulty, I was going to ask you, what are some things you've been able to do to at least make a dent in gaining that understanding? I think the tracking I was reading about in the book, but I'm guessing there are other things, too, to gain information and insight. Yeah, there's a, there's a number of tools and techniques we use. Over that. In, what's really fascinating about um, the course of the book, which is my life, of course, is we went from, you know, having no technology, basically, to study these animals except simple tagging techniques, which were very good at the time, to very complex satellite-linked, highly electronic sensors we're able to put on these sharks, including camera systems. So it really was a, a fantastic time to be a marine scientist and see these new tools and gadgets come out that have allowed us to, to reveal you know, how these animals, you know, live from, from week to week, day to day, hour to hour, even second to second, you know? Yeah. And so the new tools and technology out there have been, you know, phenomenal. Well, it's a big deal because you're, you're trying to, you drive home in the book, you're talking more about the obvious. You're talking about what, what, what this, basically telling the shark side of things as well, really. What are they experiencing? Uh, like the shark attack you mentioned early on, and then the shark comes back later on, and the whole beach is clear, so the shark is feeling something different because like there was there's no nothing coming from the beach there's nothing in the area anymore and for how, how does the shark process that what what's going on in their minds as they travel and do what they do so it's uh yeah as yeah. best we as you know as best we can tell him you know right um you know they have this incredible array of senses you know we walk through them in the book through these vignettes where we're actually in the in the body of the shark, um, you know, uh, first a male shark and then a female shark as they go from their youth up to maturity and how their diet changes and how they use this array of senses to de- determine what's around them and what's food and what's not food. And, you know, it, it's, it sounds simple, but it's so complex, you know. And so we, we take some liberties. We get in the brain of a white shark and we, we think we know what's going on. But the truth is... You know, we're basing it on the best available science, and in many cases, there's holes. In the beginning of Chapter 2, also circling back to that for a second, you begin by telling the story of a young white shark about five feet in length swimming north along the coast of New Jersey in early August. And right there, I'm reading, I'm reading on from there, but I'm, I'm cycling back to, wait a minute, <laughs> that could be any number of our listeners at the beach thinking, wait, are there, how many sharks are there? Are there sharks? So that, I just thought this is a good time to maybe just ask, what stereotypes about great white sharks have you found what parts are true and which ones are not? Or just one or two of each well, You know, I think, I think a great way to, to illustrate that is, you know, we, we can go back to the book Jaws. And, and Peter did some great, um, you know, he, with the best available science at the time, um, all they did in the movie Jaws and, and in the book is he just exaggerated some of these common features we know about white sharks, you know. Um, yes, every now and then they'll they'll bite a boat or bump a boat. You know, they don't sink them. Yes, they get big. You know, they don't get 25 feet, though. They get to be about 19, 20 feet long. Um, and the truth of the matter is, is, is the white sharks occur all along the eastern seaboard of the U.S. Most people don't realize it. Most people don't know it. You know, young white sharks, we don't know where they're born. But in their first few years of life, their their primary nursery, at least in the Atlantic, is from northern New Jersey all the way to Martha's Vineyard, you know, so there's a predominance of really small white sharks. And when they're young, they feed on, you know, small prey like schooling fish, fish that live near the bottom squid. You know, it's not until they get bigger, somewhere around nine feet long, 
that they go through somewhat of a puberty, if you will. They get bigger, they get bulkier, they get more powerful, and they start to augment their diet with bigger prey like seals. They'll scavenge whale carcasses, and so they have a much broader diet. But, you know, these are the kinds of attributes we, we bring out in the book as we walk through the young stages of a white shark all the way up to mature adults. Is there a best way for folks to keep up with you and your work? Chasing shadows will keep folks occupied for a while, but just even to kind of continue learning and growing in their knowledge? Yeah, I think the best place to do that is through my partner, and and that is uh, the Atlantic White Shark Conservancy, which is a nonprofit. You know, we try to put out everything we're doing through their social media vectors. I do have social media pages. I encourage people to visit them but I'm not very good at it. So go to the Conservancy Facebook, Twitter accounts, and you'll see you know, what we're doing from day to day. Like We're going to try to tag our first white shark of the season tomorrow. So tune in and see if that happens. Wow. Wow, that's great. Dr. Greg Skomel, author of Chasing Shadows, My Life Tracking the Great White Shark. Thank you so much for taking time with us. It's a real pri- a privilege to talk with you. And my pleasure, Tim. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Bye now. All right, Dr. Greg Skomel. Again, the book is called Chasing Shadows, My Life Tracking the Great White Shark. You're listening to the Tim DeMoss Show, AM 560, WFIL.com, and the WFIL app. More to come in just a moment. Thanks for tuning in to the Tim DeMoss Show podcast with AM 560, WFIL, and WFIL.com. WFIL.com on the app. The Marvelettes, a song that certainly was heard over these airwaves decades ago, part of the Motown era. Too Many Fish in the Sea, of course, that group known for uh, songs like Please Mr. Postman, Don't Mess Around with Bill. And that song immediately jumped to mind in light of our guest just a few moments ago, Dr. Greg Skomel, author of the book Chasing Shadows, My Life Tracking the Great White Shark. Uh, also jumping to mind, a couple of scripture passages about these uh, types of things, not sharks, but fish. And uh, I thought we'd end the show with these two passages, uh, both from Luke 5 and John 21. Just want to read these for a moment and then draw a quick parallel. Luke 5 is called, in, you know, in the Bible, you know, they have the, the, the sections labeled, but I'm getting, you know, in the original manuscripts are not called that, but they're broken up for us that way. Uh, Luke 5, I uh, use the NIV 1984 version for what it's worth. The calling of the first disciples. One day as Jesus was standing by the lake of Genesaret, with the people crowding around him and listening to the word of God, he saw at the water's edge two boats left there by the fishermen who were washing their nets. He got into one of the boats, the one belonging to Simon, and asked him to put out a little bit from shore. Then he sat down and taught the people from the boat. When Jesus had finished speaking, he said to Simon, put out into deep water and let down the nets for a catch. Simon answered, Master, we've worked hard all night and haven't caught anything. But because you say so, I will let down the nets. When they had done so, they caught such a large number of fish that their nets began to break. So they signaled their partners in the other boat to come help them, and they came and filled both boats so full they began to sink. When Simon Peter saw this, he fell at Jesus' knees and said, Go away from me, Lord, I am a sinful man. For he and all his companions were astonished at the catch of fish they had taken. And so were James and John, the sons of Zebedee, Simon's partners. Then Jesus said to Simon, Don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. So they pulled their boats up on shore, left everything, and followed him. That's Luke 5, 1 through 11. Then John 21, 
Jesus and the miraculous catch of fish. Afterward, this is after Jesus had risen from the dead, keep in mind. Jesus appeared again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. It happened this way. Simon Peter, Thomas called Didymus, Nathaniel from Canaan and Galilee, the sons of Zebedee, and the other two disciples, and two other disciples were together. I'm going out to fish, Simon Peter told them, and they said, we'll go with you. So they went out and got into the boat, but that night they caught nothing. Early in the morning, Jesus stood on the shore, but the disciples did not realize it was Jesus. He called out to them, friends, haven't you any fish? No, they answered. He said, throw your net on the right side of the boat and you'll find some. When they did, they were unable to haul the net in because of the large number of fish. Then the disciple whom Jesus loved said to Peter, It is the Lord. As soon as Simon Peter heard him say, It is the Lord, he wrapped his outer garment around him, for he had taken it off, and jumped into the water. The other disciples followed in the boat, towing the net full of fish, for they were not far from shore, about a hundred yards. When they landed, they saw a fire of burning coals there with fish on it and some bread. Jesus said to them, Bring some of the fish you have just caught. Simon Peter climbed aboard and dragged the net ashore. It was full of large fish, 153. But even with so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, Come and have breakfast. None of the disciples dared ask him, Who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, took the bread and gave it to them, and did the same with the fish. This was now the third time Jesus appeared to his disciples after he was raised from the dead. That's John 21, 1 through 14. And I remember reading through the Gospels recently and and seeing this and thinking, wow, I forgot about the fact he did this a couple of times. You think about it when the disciples are first called, or you might remember the other one, but I, I forgot. And this, these are before they followed him and after they had followed him and after he'd already died and been raised. Uh, and so it's interesting, the Lord, you know, weaves it all together. The second time around, he he tells him to do the same thing. And that was a cue. One of the, the disciple whom Jesus loved, usually referred to as John, says, it's the Lord. You know, it, 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 it's like a sweet way of, I think, of Jesus saying, hey, guess who I am? I'm here. I'm back. And uh, I'm revealing myself to you once again. Also in Luke 5, I think it's a beautiful thing. And I think Jesus says this to each of us. When, when Simon said, go away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. Jesus said to Simon, don't be afraid. From now on, you will catch men. And I just say that because I think it's in the scriptures a lot where Jesus says to not just Peter, but to us, do not be afraid. Don't be afraid. He is with us and he will lead us through all the different things in our lives that we need to do. And he'll be right there with us. Thanks for listening in. Thanks to Jane Ferguson and Dr. Greg Skummel as well for joining our program. We pass the baton now to Alice Shebag, Truth for Life. That's up next. Tim DeMoss Show on WFIL. Have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Tim DeMoss Show podcast. Feel free to tune in to the full show each weekday afternoon from 4 till 5 on AM 560 WFIL and at WFIL.com. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. 
The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal records to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.